Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning as we worship our worthy Savior together. One more time, I invite you to join me in prayer as we come before him now. Our glorious Father, we again thank you for the privilege of being drawn to gather in your name as we open now your marvelous word. Would you speak, for we, your servants, are listening. Would you instruct us, and by your Holy Spirit, would you bear fruit through the preaching of this word in the lives of your people, the fruit of holiness in those who are yours and the fruit of salvation in those that you are drawing in your wisdom. Lord, may none of us leave here today the same as which we arrived, but all be conformed to the likeness of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have to confess to you, I am not very good at fixing things. I have gotten more bold in recent years, and uh, the difference that, uh, uh, that took place, the, the thing that initiated this greater boldness when it comes to fixing things, especially around our home, I have to admit, was YouTube. Now, don't get me wrong, because I do not spend uh, time surfing around YouTube to watch the largely pointless content that is on there. But somebody switched me on to the fact that there are how-to videos and that because I live in an old house, it would be good if I started to learn a little bit about how to fix things. So I have, uh, with the aid of some of these tutorials, been able to, with some degree of success, accomplish certain projects. But I still, on a regular basis, find, even as I sit and watch those tutorials before I consider starting the job, that I watch them and I shake my head and I think, I do not have the ability. I don't even have the tools to be able to do that. And I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this, but I confess to you that I have sometimes found myself starting a job and out of my insufficient experience and ability, I have actually made the job worse. In fact, I have created more problems than there were in the first place. And so when I eventually call my plumber or the electrician or whoever it may be, they come, they look at it, they shake their head, and they say, just call me next time before you try yourself. I am often amazed at the danger and the difficulties that are caused by an insufficient understanding of a task that is to be accomplished. But I am equally amazed at the ability of those who know what they are doing to solve the problem and to be able to remedy the situation. This morning, I invite you to join me in the New Testament book of Acts, and specifically in Acts chapter 18, and we're going to look together at three episodes. We're going to look at them relatively briefly. 
But these are three episodes that as Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he seems to lay out for us to remind us of the importance of an accurate gospel. We might, in fact, say that an accurate gospel understanding results in a growing gospel impact. But as he instructs us in this, we are going to see that there is frequently the danger or the problem that existed in the early church, and it still happens today, that is caused by an insufficient gospel understanding. In Acts chapter 18, Luke records for us one of his customary uh, um, summary statements in verse 23. He tells us that the Apostle Paul has been traveling. He's arrived back in Antioch. That was his sending church. He has reported all that the Lord has been doing. And then he begins to go again and to travel around and to strengthen the believers in the places that he goes. And then we come to Acts 18 verse 24, where we are going to begin our time this morning. And I want to suggest to you that we have here in these three episodes we're going to look at something of an example of how believers were being strengthened, or rather how the church was being strengthened, even amidst what we might call these insufficiencies. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, and they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. But when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so we see here this first, if you like, episode that is recorded for us in this portion of the book of Acts, and we are introduced to this individual by the name of Apollos. And what we seem to have laid out for us is that Apollos had an insufficient doctrine. Now, he is introduced here, and he's actually a character that we read about Elsewhere in the New Testament, in particular in 1 Corinthians, the believers there in Corinth apparently uh, later on had, uh, uh, had grouped themselves into various factions. They supported themselves around various different teachers. And so in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, as he writes to them, addresses the problem of divisions because some of them are saying, well, we're of Apollos. And others are saying, well, we're of Cephas, we're of, of, of Peter. Others were saying that well, we're of Paul. And then there were those spiritual folks who were saying, well, we're of Jesus. But the point was that they had sort of developed this following. And, and there in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this, and he reminds them, 
what is Apollos and what is Paul? But we are but co-laborers in this work. But this in Acts chapter 18 is in fact where we meet Apollos for the first time. And when we meet him, we're given some important information. We are told that he was a Jew. Uh, so he uh, also was a native of Alexandria, which was a, an important city in northern Egypt. Especially at this particular time in history, it was well known as one of the academic centers of the known world. In fact, Apollos's name literally means a learned man. And uh, this seems to be clear in the description that Luke gives of him here. So this Apollos travels from Alexandria, his hometown, to Ephesus. And we're told that he was an eloquent man, competent in the, in the scriptures. So he was an excellent speaker. He had probably been trained in the rhetoric and the style of the day and uh, was engaging to listen to. More than that, he was competent in the scriptures. He had the skill, the gift, the ability to handle God's word effectively. And furthermore, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, we simply don't know to what degree that was. And as we'll see in just a moment, there's some debate over this. Uh, but we're told that he at least has some understanding as to the things pertaining to Jesus. And then we are told again that he is fervent in spirit. Uh, and this seems to indicate that there was, there was a passion in his preaching. Furthermore, he spoke and taught accurately concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And so we have here this indication that while he is very engaging and knowledgeable in the things that he understands, there is also something that is lacking. Now, we don't know exactly what it is that he knew. We don't know exactly what it was that he was preaching at this point. Perhaps he was preaching a message which, which uh, declared the, the promise of the Messiah, but he didn't yet fully understand all that Jesus himself had accomplished as that promised Messiah. Perhaps he was preaching a message that, that declared the, the miraculous works, uh, the teaching, uh, the, the, the uh, ministry of Jesus, and yet was devoid of an understanding of his work in the cross and in the, in the resurrection. Perhaps he was preaching a message which declared uh, the salvific work of Christ through the cross as he gives himself as an atoning sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement for the sins of the people, the glorious resurrection from the dead. But perhaps in his preaching, he did not yet understand that the promise of the Spirit who comes at Pentecost had been given. We simply don't know there has been some debate, but there is no indication here that Apollos is one who was unregenerate. It certainly seems to speak favorably of him. I think it's helpful that Daryl Bach, theologian, reminds us of the unique place 
that the book of Acts holds in Christian history. And he helpfully suggests that Apollos is a figure who is caught in the midst of transition. He ministers in the diaspora, and, 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 he, and yet he needs to be brought up to date. And he goes on to say that his preaching is not so much inaccurate as it is merely incomplete. It's not inaccurate as much as it is incomplete. And we could certainly say the same of many, unfortunately, in the church today. How many, for example, uh, preach a, a message of law without gospel? How many preach an idea of the cross without the resurrection? How many preach grace without obedience? How many preach uh, love without the pursuit of holiness? Again, we don't know exactly what it is that he was preaching, but we do see something in response to the problem of an insufficient doctrine, and that is the solution of a gracious and patient instruction. I think it's interesting that here we are introduced again to some characters that uh, we first would have seen at the beginning of Acts chapter 18, a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla had opened their home in the city of Corinth to the Apostle Paul when he first arrived there. They then subsequently had traveled with Paul to Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla had stayed in Ephesus where we find them now, but Paul had determined to go on from there, not to stay in Ephesus. We learn about that in the preceding verses. But here we find that as Apollos goes into the synagogues, it so happens that one day as he is preaching boldly in the synagogues, uh, uh, um, uh, Aquila and Priscilla happen to be sat there. And it's very interesting because when they hear him speaking, when they hear him teaching, they do not stand up and storm out. They do not leave the service at the end of the day at the synagogue and go home and draft a scathing letter to the preacher of the day. They do not go onto Twitter and inform the entire world about the heretical teachings of this awful speaker who they heard. But rather, we simply see that it says that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, verse 26, they took him. I, I, I like that. Where did they take him? We can probably assume that they maybe took him to their home. Uh, whatever it was, or to wherever they took him, there was this idea that, that they, they brought him aside. They didn't deal with this in public, but they brought it into private. They invited him into their lives and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, it's interesting, in verse 25, in the introduction to Apollos, we see that he, in fact, uh, spoke and taught accurately concerning the things related to Jesus. But now we see that when Aquila and Priscilla take him aside, they, they explain things more accurately, more accurately. And so we see here, 
what I think here is just a wonderful and gracious example. And what I particularly love is not only the, the attitude of Aquila and Priscilla, who did not write him off, who did not make excuses and say, well, we're not professional Bible teachers, so it's not our job, uh, who did not think to themselves, well, he's a whole lot more intelligent and a lot more gifted than we are, so what do we have to offer? They did not leave it to somebody else, but they stepped graciously into the fray in grace and in truth. And I love the fact also that we see here with Apollos that there is a teachable, that there is a humble attitude. He did not hide behind his own intellect and education. He did not hide behind his own gifting. Too often today we, we, we see people who are incredibly gifted, but with that gift there becomes an arrogance, there becomes a pride, and they are unwilling to listen but instead, here we see this growth, and we then see the impact as Luke records to us that the result of the gracious and patient instruction was that when the insufficient doctrine becomes an accurate and, and impactful understanding, that it, it strengthens the church. And so he goes from there, and he has a desire. He has an inclination to go to Corinth. And rather than them saying, well, we're not really sure because we had to instruct you in this, they take great confidence. They recognize the gift. They recognize the calling, and, and they actually commend him to the believers there. Apollos goes and has a fruitful ministry there, as it says, when he arrived in Corinth, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, and he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so we see what starts as an insufficient doctrine that with careful and patient and gracious instruction becomes an impactful clear understanding of the gospel. Today, just as we're, there were then, there are many in our churches that have an insufficient doctrine. Uh, it's what I sometimes refer to as the problem of a close enough theology. You see, it, it's become a very common thing today for us to to be fine with a doctrine, with a, uh, an announcement of, a, uh, of theology that is unconcerned with details. And so there's this idea of, uh, well, that wasn't bad. They were almost there, so that, that's good enough. That's close enough. But the problem with having a close enough theology is that what is close enough today, tomorrow becomes something that we just have to get close enough to. And so over time, we see this departure from truth step by step because we were satisfied with simply being close enough. The reality is that we need to be diligent to have a teachable attitude. We need to be those who are growing in our understanding of sound doctrine, and we ought to be those who do not despise details. 
because details matter. As I was considering this passage and this message, what the Lord would have me share with you this morning, there was a little bit of a sense in which I was feeling like I'm addressing a church that cares deeply about sound doctrine on the matters of having an accurate understanding of the gospel. And I'm so thankful for your pastor and your elders who diligently work to equip the body here in sound doctrine. And so I considered how do I address this? There's a sense in which I'm preaching to the choir, perhaps. But then I thought that we do have to all remember that with grace and patience, that we ourselves must be those who invest in helping others to more accurately understand the gospel as well. And it may be that there are some of us here who need to be reminded to be careful, do not write off others who may be out of a diligence and a boldness and a desire to make Christ known are doing it from a position of a insufficient doctrine. Sometimes our temptation can simply be to say they are not of us. We must have nothing to do with them. But could it be that the Lord has placed you in proximity to that person so that you would draw near in a manner in which Aquila and Priscilla did. I would encourage you, don't make excuses thinking to yourself, well, I don't know if I know enough. I don't have the position. If the Lord has set around you someone like an Apollos, would you step into the fray But as you do that, I want to encourage you or something that I think is a mistake that many in the church today make, and that is would you make sure that you take people always back to the Word, take them always back to the Scriptures in that, because there are many who love to step into the fray to bring about correction, even where correction is appropriate and is needed, but they seek to do so according to their own theological fascination. Now, that theological fascination may indeed be sound and correct, but do not, do not overwhelm people with that, with that speculation over that. Take them to the Word. Take them to the Word and make much of Jesus. With grace, come, strengthen, and as you strengthen others, Support and encourage them in the ministry that the Lord will open to them as a result of that strengthening as well. And likewise, if someone were to come to you and to speak to you over an area which may be an insufficient understanding, I would exhort you to listen carefully, to pray intently, to study 
diligently and to respond humbly. As uh, Pastor Paul mentioned in his introduction earlier, by God's grace, I serve with a ministry, Carry International Pastoral Training. We have the privilege of equipping pastors and leaders in various places around the world. So reflect on this, and I think in particular of Apollos here in the example. One of the places that we work is in Egypt, and it is a difficult place to be a believer in that majority Islamic environment and many of the portions of Egypt that we work in are certainly hostile to the gospel. But tragically, in the midst of that, even where the church is, is, is holding on, where the church is seeking to minister, there has crept in various forms of what we might call an insufficient doctrine, one of them being the, the, the declaration that that sin is not something that, that separates us from God. It is not something that needs repenting of. It is not something that, that requires uh, the, the, the sacrificial work of Christ who is our propitiation, but rather they say that sin is merely the inability to experience the love of God. And, and that, that the work of Christ on the cross is simply for us an illustration of the depth and the extent of God's love for us. There are in Egypt some very passionate and very gifted teachers who, in a sense, teach accurately the things pertaining to the Lord, and yet there is an insufficient doctrine. And by God's grace, because of the partnership that you have with us. We're able to be there investing in these pastors and leaders. And right now we're very excited because there has been a, a very liberal group that has been involved in, in, in spreading this, this insufficient doctrine and have even gone now to the point of utterly rejecting the inerrancy of Scripture. And as a result... Well, we have been asked to come in and with a few faithful men there to usher an entire network of churches back to biblical fidelity and gospel accuracy. And it is exciting already to see how the gospel is bearing fruit because the biblical Jesus is being preached. It's only the first. You'll be happy to know I'll be a little quicker with the others. As we move into chapter 19, we have a second episode, and here we see a group of Ephesian disciples, and if, the, if Apollos had an issue of an insufficient doctrine that needed correcting, these Ephesian disciples had what we might call an insufficient baptism. And so we read, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. 
and he entered into the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. He took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so again here we have this kind of picture of something that was insufficient that ultimately leads then to an ongoing strengthening of the church when it is made straight, when accuracy is brought to bear. It's interesting that we see here there's almost like a shifting of positions because what has happened here now is that, that Apollos leaves Ephesus to go to Corinth, uh, and now Paul arrives in Ephesus. And so we see here uh, that we are shown that, that no matter who the faithful gospel ministers are in the early church, they are all engaged wherever they go in this idea of strengthening and correcting and helping and building up the body in true gospel unity and understanding. We see here that this group that Paul encounters when he first arrives in Ephesus are simply referred to as disciples. When we read that word, we tend to think of that as being those who are uh, believers, who are followers of Jesus. But again, there's uh, uh, some debate over what exactly did they know? And, and, and whatever it was that, that Paul uh, recognized when he first interacted with them, he recognized some form of insufficiency. And so he asked them this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, we have to understand that as we stand here today, uh, we can with great confidence and on the clear foundation of Scripture declare that, that at the moment in which somebody is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, at that moment of salvation, they are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We're reminded of this over and over again in the pages of the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we see that it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, we see, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then again in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But as Bach helpfully uh, reminded us earlier, there's a sense that here we find ourselves in the book of Acts, this time of transition in some respects, where it, as a public declaration that certain groups are now being included in the gospel, that we sometimes see uh, this manifestation of the Spirit in, a, in an unusual, extraordinary way. So again, we don't know for sure what it is that they understood, but we do know how 
Paul then goes on to correct them because they say, no, we had not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Seems unlikely if they had undergone the baptism of John that they had never heard about this because Luke 3.16 tells us that, that, uh, that it uh, featured largely in the preaching of John the Baptist. But perhaps they were unaware that the eschatological promise that was fulfilled at Pentecost was now available to them, whatever the case may be. They had a baptism of repentance, but they did not have the Spirit. And so, we are reminded that an insufficient baptism that we see here means that they only had a half of the gospel. Because repentance and the acknowledgement of our sin before a holy God, as important as it is and as central as it is to the gospel message is not the whole of the gospel message. It is only a part of it. We must not simply confess our sins, but we must have a Savior who has borne our sins. We must not simply acknowledge our guilt, but we must have one who washes us of it and imputes to us a righteousness that is not our own. We must not merely undergo a ritual, but we must experience the rebirth through the Spirit. And so the solution is that Paul declares Christ to them as the fulfillment of the promises of God. He reminds them that even John himself said, look to the one who comes after me. He said, I am not worthy even to untie his sandals. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So Paul declares Christ as the fulfillment of all of the promises of God, and they are baptized now into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we see uh, uh, this, this manifestation, this public demonstration that they, are, too, are included in the gospel. We see how Luke records that this kicks off, it ushers in a more than two-year ministry that Paul has, continuing to strengthen the church there. It's interesting that uh, the issue here is one of repentance but without, the, without the Spirit. And as uh, Pastor Paul mentioned even in his introduction a little earlier, we must be careful because it is impossible to live the Christian life in our own effort. And a legalistic message, a insufficient declaration of the gospel that simply states behavior modification, but apart from the transforming work of Christ, cannot save. But I've noticed that as I travel around the world, and you don't have to look too far for this in North America either, that in many respects, the opposite of this situation is frequently true, and that is that there is such a fascination with the Holy Spirit that there is no room for repentance and transformation. One of the places we work in Uganda, it would appear that the church is very numerous. And yet when you see what is being taught, you see that there is a fascination with the blessing of God, what we often will refer to as the prosperity gospel that is no gospel at all. 
but there is also such an emphasis on the miraculous, an emphasis on this idea that God will bless, God will demonstrate in powerful works, God will do these things. One of the pastors that we were training there, Pastor Richard, came to me recently after I was teaching there. And he said, I am so impacted by this time of teaching because I realized that I have been teaching and I have been preaching and even in my own life and I have never once given any attention to repentance. I have never once called people to acknowledge their sin before a holy God. I have never once done this. I've been so focused on this mystical pouring out of some sort of blessing or power or supernatural something He said, I realized that I have had an insufficient understanding of the gospel. And he said, and I have harmed my church. And I have harmed those who have heard. But by God's grace, he and several other pastors who are a part of our training network there are not only going back into their church, and they are preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They are preaching repentance and faith in him. But they are now going from village to village. All of the places that they have ever ministered, they are going back to. And they are repenting in those villages. And they are preaching the true gospel. And people are responding. And they are finding hope and joy and deliverance in Jesus Christ. Because you see, an accurate gospel understanding results in a growing gospel impact. And finally, very briefly, I have to include this last section because it has a certain tragic yet comedic aspect to it that I love. We find still in Ephesus that God was doing extraordinary miracles, verse 11, by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I think it's interesting that even Luke, as he writes here, acknowledges these were extraordinary, unusual, not normal miracles, and yet God by his grace was doing them for the advance of the gospel. But then verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But when the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both to Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. And so we see not only that Apollos had an insufficient doctrine that those disciples in Ephesus had an insufficient baptism. But we see here with this example in this portion of the passage that these sons of Sceva had an insufficient faith. While God was working miraculously in Ephesus, we see that some of them were trying to capitalize on the name of Jesus by using it almost as a magic charm rather than having a vibrant relationship with Christ. And we see this description of these men 
that we won't go into much detail in, but apparently they were traveling from place to place, probably seeking money for this performance of exorcisms. We don't know whether or not they were in fact sons of a high priest, more likely a chief priest, or some have suggested that perhaps it was just part of their marketing campaign, which was slightly embellished. But whatever the case may be, we have, as I said, something of a tragic yet comedic situation here because they invoke the name of Jesus. They recognize that there is power in the name of Jesus. And so they announce, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the man possessed of the evil spirit rather amusingly says, Yep, Jesus, I know him. Paul, yep. I recognize him, but who are you? They did not themselves have a spiritual authority with which to do this ministry because they saw the name of Jesus as merely being like a charm or a mystical incantation that they could use, as was somewhat common in this culture, this belief that if they used the right mantra that they could accomplish their purposes. So the problem was they seemed to believe that the name of Jesus has power, but they themselves had no faith in him, no vital relationship with Christ. Now, I love the fact that here again we see another one of Luke's summary statements as he goes on to talk about the fact that that the when this happens and all of it is seen, that the fear of the Lord falls upon the people of Ephesus, that the name of Jesus was extolled, and then we go to see the transforming impact. Those who are in Christ evidence the genuineness of their faith through a transformed lives as they turn from their former practices, as they give up their old ways, as they even sacrifice and burn the, the, the valuable books and manuscripts that they had. And as it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, even through this demonstration of an insufficient faith, gospel accuracy is seen in the city of Ephesus, and it produces an impact. Just like in Ephesus, however, there are all kinds of places, all kinds of people who have an insufficient faith. There is a temptation oftentimes to see Jesus as being an accessory Someone who we latch onto our lives, but without any vibrant relationship, whether it may be that even amongst us here this morning, that you gather here with us this Sunday morning for which we are thankful. But this is something of a place marker in your week, a tradition, something that you think will be beneficial, and indeed it is. But... In walking out of the door, there is no real connection with the Jesus that we talk about here and the life which is lived from Monday through Saturday. There are those, and we probably all have seen them, who wear a cross around the neck as something like a lucky charm. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a cross around the neck as a piece of, uh, of jewelry, but for some, it is much akin to a rabbit's foot. There are those who, perhaps somewhat like the sons of Sceva here, 
might find themselves in hot water and think to themselves, I adjure you in the name of Jesus in whom my mother and my father believe. And they think that because of some relationship or connection through others that there is meaning or significance or power. Again, we see this in different places around the world. Here it is often far more subtle, but in, as we minister in India, there are such problems within the church of those who, who are happy to add Jesus on to their Hindu faith because, after all, what is one other deity amidst all of the many that are out there? And while we may not have idols in our home that we bow down to in other areas, we must ask ourselves whether or not we do not fall prey to an insufficient faith that sets Jesus as some sort of charm that should be turned to only in case of emergency. And so, to draw to a conclusion, first, can I say thank you? Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your partnership with us as as a ministry we seek to be involved in bringing gospel accuracy to pastors and leaders in remote areas of the world who are ministering in the midst of Islamic and Hindu, Buddhist and communist places, some of whom are under the threat of tremendous persecution. Thank you for partnering with us in that. It is exciting to see what God is doing as gospel truth is beginning to be declared in places that have had an insufficient understanding and how people are coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But while we should rejoice that an accurate gospel understanding results in a growing gospel impact and that that is being evidenced even in our own community and in places around the world, we should also, in light of this, soberly examine. First, how do we respond to those around us who have an insufficient doctrine, an insufficient baptism, an insufficient faith? Is it by writing them off or is it by prayerfully and winsomely and biblically pointing them to Jesus, to the accurate gospel, and not only doing so, friends, with our words? But I want to plead with you that while our words are vitally important and we must accurately proclaim the gospel, may we also, by God's grace, be those who live lives that are consistent with the words that we proclaim. May we be those who biblically point others to Jesus to the accurate gospel that is by grace alone, that is through faith alone, in Christ alone, as declared in the scriptures alone, and to the glory of God alone. And if today you are here and you have heard this and you have thought to yourself that you have found yourself disturbed in some way over whether yours is an accurate understanding of the gospel, whether perhaps there may be some area in your life in which there is an insufficient understanding that is falling short of biblical truth. Let me encourage you to talk to your pastor or to the elders here 
Let me encourage you to dig into the Word of God, because even as we heard just a few moments before I began, we have a God who has not left us to wonder what an accurate, what the accurate gospel is, but he has clearly declared it in his faithful word. And as the old hymn reassures us, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And so, go to the Word. Make sure that you have a firm foundation and rejoice because an accurate gospel understanding will result in a growing gospel impact both in your life and in the lives of others who by God's grace you're able to touch with that message. Father, we praise you for the splendor of the gospel. We thank you that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of your great and very precious promises. And we thank you that we have life in his name. Oh Lord, would you help us to see where perhaps we have fallen short or have an insufficient understanding of the gospel where we have bought into unbiblical ideas or where we simply are still learning and growing. And would you give us a hunger to drink deeply from your glorious word and to stand firmly on the foundation of your word. And Lord, I pray especially for this church. I thank you for them. I thank you for their desire for gospel fidelity. I thank you for their passion for sound doctrine. I pray that this would also be a church that delights to graciously and patiently help to strengthen others, just like Aquila and Priscilla did in those days of old, that others too would mature in the faith and boldly proclaim the splendor of our Savior. For the glory of your name among the nations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.